Welcome to Two Guys and a Question, where Danny Jefferson and Alan Creedy challenge conventional thinking by fielding questions for more than a thousand subscribers, all in less than 12 minutes an episode. So this is Danny Jefferson. This is Alan Creedy. We're Two Guys and a Question, and we've got a special guest today, Carl Jennings. And Carl wrote a book a number of years ago called When We Must Say Farewell. And Carl, I ordered a second copy of this last week. And I went to Amazon, and it wasn't there. So I'm going to put a link, but if with your permission, I'm going to put your email address in 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 this podcast. And I'm assuming that if people email you, they can get a copy. They can buy a copy of your book. That would happen. Yes. All right. Yep. So anyway, look forward to that. It'll be in the podcast uh, material. But you know what we want to talk about, Carl. Um, observed behavior uh, in his funeral home. And Carl, what, you've been in the business 40 years? 40 plus years? Yes, yes, yeah, right, 40 so years. Old-timer, yeah. but, see, Carl's an independent observer. He's always trying to figure out the, why, why things are the way they are. And during 9-11, he observed a, a pattern of behavior that he had seen all his career, and it helped put him in, into context. And out of that developed something he calls the theory of acute loss. Now we're all we're all familiar with grief therapy and the theory of grief and the five stages of grief, but this theory, in my opinion, really hits the core and the nub of what makes a funeral service work. So Carl, kind of give us a little background and then walk us through, if you will. Well, thank you, Alan and Danny. I'm, I'm really excited to be with you. Um, what I will tell you is. Uh, I got into this profession for the same reason many first-generation people get into it, and that is because I saw it as an opportunity to help people at one of the most uh, difficult times in their lives. And when I went, when I went to school, um, I was excited to learn how that happened. Uh, what Where did you go to school? I went to Wayne State University, um, and I was excited to learn how that would happen and um, after about a half of the school year I went to the director of the program and said okay this is all interesting stuff and I was a biology and chemistry major before I got there so the part of the curriculum I was probably most interested in was really sort of the psychological or sociological aspects of loss and death and um, really uh, wasn't uh, learning much uh, in the in that area and not much was offered in and so I asked her basically when I would I learn how to you know help or engage people at the time of loss and was told well I learned that as an apprentice and um, and so I went and served an apprenticeship and I learned a lot of things as an apprentice but um, uh, how to manage or care for people at the time of loss was certainly not one of those and so that was the reason I got in it took me many years uh, studying a variety of different subjects um, learning at a an, at a, a number of different um, continuing ed courses, both within the industry and outside of the industry. And then on the, the, the days following September 11th, uh, uh, just observing what the country was going through and what was happening within our community and then literally what was happening within myself and trying to put a name to it, I started walking every night. And in those walks, I started to see a pattern and a pattern that once I was able to start naming it, it was a pattern that was in front of me the entire time I'd been working. I just couldn't name it. And once I sort of figured out what that pattern was, I really just 
started diving the best I could to um, answer the question why. Why do we react? Why are we behaving the way we do in this early period of loss? What, what compels us? What's driving us psychologically? What's driving us sociologically? Um, what's driving us spiritually um, through this period of time? And, and as I just kept pressing into that and pressing into it, um, I began to, uh, to introduce it a little bit into the arrangement room. Uh, because there are a lot of times that arrangements to me felt a little transactional. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes a lot transactional. You know, the, the sum total of the inquiry we would have is sort of how can I help you? And then, you know, people would tell us what they wanted and we, you know, do our best to, to provide it for them. And when I started introducing some of what I was thinking about and, and uh, talking with, I, I saw conversations begin to, to blossom that, uh, you know, I longed to have, but didn't really know how to enter into in a, in a way that, you know, wasn't just a one-off conversation here where I happened to click with a family or a one-off conversation there. And in that pattern, I began to observe there were questions that I could ask and that I could guide them through a process of understanding what their family was going to be facing in the immediacy of the loss that would help them to begin a healthy grief journey. And so that's uh, probably a quick summary of it, Alan, but it's been 20 plus years that we've been doing it. And um, candidly, I don't think I would still be doing this. Uh, it, it, the profession had become a pretty discouraging place to be prior to this. Carl, you used the word inquiry. And in using that word, does that define how you were able to help some of these families with understand the process, when, why, what? So the good news is I had about 20 years experience to reflect upon. <laughs> uh, some good experiences, some bad experiences, but 20 years or so of experiences to reflect upon as I began to sort of formulate. And, and I was still very much every day in the arrangement room in those days too. And so as I... Um, as I began to you know, challenge myself and my thinking, I also began then to start asking questions. Rather than sharing information with families, I would just try to ask a question that um, would, would uh, prompt the next uh, set of questions. But one of the questions I asked one time was really surprised. Uh, we were having a family that wanted a uh, no services, no ritual, just the direct disposition of their loved one's remains. And I, I asked the question, could you help me understand how this is going to help your family cope with the loss and begin a healing journey? And um, I wasn't intending to expose them, you know, but the response across the table was sort of like dumbfounded. Like it was the most obvious question and the one that was just under the surface but one they had no clue how to answer. We're not sure what you mean. And that said, well, that's, that's okay. Now, now I have a place to share with you some information that will answer that question. And so a lot of what we learned was, you know, questions that we could ask, but in, in a way that would be the right question. Alan, many years ago you said to me, you sent me an article, what's the job that needs to be done? What's the job that needs to be done? And people think the job that needs to be done is they have a loved one who's died and they have to um, manage the care of that loved one, either through, uh, through some sort of disposition. 
when in fact the great unspoken is how are they going to begin a healthy journey in their new grief, right? And uh, we were never trained in, as funeral directors on how to engage that. I like your terminology, the great unspoken. This is, this is part of what I think that, that funeral directors need to grasp is they need to find a way to pull out that great unspoken. No question. And that, to be candid with you, that's what made it, uh, made my job so rewarding over the last 20 years is those were the kind of questions that I had answers for. <laughs> those were things that I could actually interact with them on and create meaningful connection, meaningful connection with them. And, and so consequently, the, the engagement with the client became more rewarding for me and I think more satisfying for them as well because they saw me something other than um, a compassionate person who was you know, caring for their loved one. They saw me as sort of instrumental to them, yeah. If I can interject something, if I recall, I don't know if it's still true, but in your little community of Hamburg, Michigan, you do 135% market share. Uh, we have a larger percent of the market than we, we, we extend out quite a ways. Yeah, because your service area, because of what you've done, has begun pulling people from what, as far as 35 miles away? Uh, that would be a reach on, a, on a, a regular basis. I mean, I think everybody occasionally gets somebody from a distance, but we have you know, two really big communities near us. Um, and we draw, you know, I always like to say your tentacles are either going out or they're coming in to your market, right? And, but there's another aspect of that too, Alan. It's just not where your tentacles are going out, but it's the type of customer that you attract. Excellent, excellent point. And so for us, you know, we have, we have families that have experienced what we offer that will drive by two or three funeral homes on the way to us for the purpose of knowing what they're coming for yeah. uh, in that way, so. I've got to ask your hospice community, how do they react to this revelation? You know, that there's two, two constituencies. There's first our clergy and then our, our hospice, right? Uh, one of the great joys of my last 20 years is that I've gotten to go into so many of our churches and teach their staff this. Um, and that has been uh, exciting for me. Um, and it, it has helped them understand and be able to communicate the value of uh, Christian ritual at the time of loss uh, to their own, uh, their own people. And so there's that aspect of it. Um, hospice is a little more complicated today as opposed to 20 years ago, where 20 years ago you were dealing with community hospices. Today you're really dealing much more with corporate hospices. Yeah. And so the, um, the ability to get in and affect and connect is a little more complicated with the local group because um, it's, it is a little bit uh, less accessible, let's just put it that way, because of the corporate environment. So I, I would really say there was two phases. The first phase, when it was more of a community hospice, it was, it was great. We, we had regular in-services at the hospices. They were f excited to know a funeral home finally got it. You know, I mean, that's what we would hear from them. Um, and it gave them a clear understanding of the value proposition of what takes place for families after they leave their care, where for all, so long, um, they would give people information only on the spoken request that they had, which was 
who's the least expensive cremation provider in the market uh, without ever addressing the unspoken request, which is, you know, what am I going to be able to get what I need to help my family begin healing? So, Carl, what was the, help us with the pattern you saw. What was the pattern that really opened your eyes? Well, for me, it was so intimately linked initially to September 11th and my own experience of uh, driving. Uh, I was on my way to a meeting, a uh, community about 45 minutes to an hour away from us. I was a, a father with young kids. I used to say a young father, and then I realized I wasn't that young. Uh, <laughs> but I was a father with young kids, so, you know, I'm in the car. It's quiet. I, I'm not turning on the radio. And I get a phone call that morning from my, my business partner, Todd, and said, have you heard what happened? And I said, no, I haven't heard anything. And he proceeds to tell me, and in my mind, I begin that process of going, how in the world did that happen? And, you know, did the pilot have a heart attack and you know you just go through that cycle of questions because of the uncertainty you don't have enough information you don't you've not been given the information you need to understand what's taking place and it's so far out of the blue kind of thing well before the phone was over the conversation was over uh, he said oh my goodness another plane has just hit the other tower and in that moment everything changed because now this was a known thing this was an attack on the country and for me, I hung up the phone, I called my wife immediately, um, and I began that process of reaching out to those who were closest to me to touch base with them. And I wanted to make sure that my grandmother, who was still alive at that time, somebody would go and be with her because I was afraid that she'd be frightened by what she heard, right? And I was not reflecting at this point, Al, Alan and Danny. I was still very much and deeply embedded in the experience of it, right? Well, I went on to my business meeting after my phone calls, and I went into the room. And here's the thing. I had heard the news. I had shared that news multiple times with people. But it still was very much a cognitive process for me. I was still trying to figure it out and understand and gather data. And I got into this office where it was about a 20 by 20 room, and there were about 10 people in there staring at a screen up in the corner. And I looked up at it, and I saw what was happening. And it was then I had that visceral response of both anger and sadness combined. And I had the big old crocodile tears just start coming down. I, I, I just was, like many Americans, just trying to wrap my mind around what was going on. And yet seeing the, the absolute um, horrible signs of people jumping from the tower and, and the, the news accounts of it. And... It was when I started walking a week or so later at night, just trying to wrap my mind around what happened, I started thinking about this. And I said, it occurred to me, the moment that what was happening became real for me wasn't in the hearing or even in the sharing of what happened. It was when I saw from my, with my own eyes. And the closer that you are to ground zero, the more your senses are engaged in what takes place, the more real it is. And when it's more real, especially in that kind of environment, we have the information that allows us to begin to have the context to take our steps forward. But if it just stays in the cognitive part of our brain, if it never becomes, and, and, and I understand the brain work in this, it's the, diff, you know, it's the division of our primitive brain and our, and our, um, and our cortex, but it's, 
and there's real science to this, but I, I, without going in that, I understand that now. But what was going on is the deeper that I was involved and understood what was happening and I continued to lean into it, the more I was able to connect the visceral response I was having with my cognitive thoughts and begin that integration of those two things. And when we have loss, when we have traumatic experience, we're looking for words that help empower us to be able to get some sense of control, some sense of understanding. And so at the core, that's what our model does for people, is that we are able to connect the languaging and the questioning that we have with the acute loss period to help them connect the dots between what they're viscerally feeling, that primitive part of their brain with no words, with the cognitive. And that's what allows us to empower them to understand what they're going through. From that place, then, they can make good decisions about what it is their family needs. Um, does that make sense? I let, me, let me kind of give, reflect. So out of that, you devised seven, I don't know if they're steps or phases or, or what, but the first one is here. Yes. Okay, and the second one is connect. No, it's, share, it's, share, it's hearing, sharing, seeing, Gathering, yep, and then gathering, connecting, reflecting, and celebrating. So what, what came out of that for me, and I think for you, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, is what you've just described is, to me, the, the core purpose of what we call a funeral or a celebration or whatever we want, the label we want to put on it, those are shared elements. You can very much personalize this. I, I remember when I got the phone call telling me my father had died. I remember when, uh, when, when, my, when my mother went into her stroke and then she died. And all of those things that you have discovered as the pattern were spontaneous. They weren't something that we read in a book. Nope. They were spontaneous. And that, to me, your discovery, that pattern, just laid the foundation, underscored, cornerstone, whatever powerful word you want to use, for the reason that we do what we do. Uh, several years ago, I had uh, the privilege of meeting the uh, CEO of Lamborghini. And uh, actually was uh, in a small group with him for uh, a couple of years. And uh, impressive guy, but one day he asked me, so Carl, I understand you're doing some interesting things in funeral service. Tell me about that. And I was feeling a little pressure. I'll not, not lie about that. But uh, um, I said, well, Tim, ex essentially what we're doing is we're reintroducing uh, the value of ritual at the time of loss. And so this is the human experience. And this you could literally view this as the tree. Mm -hmm. It was a Christmas tree. And the ritual is the ornaments that we put around it to allow us to express what we need. And that's where the individual or personal experience is expressed. But the, what you just said to me right there, you know, my wife likes an informal Christmas tree. It's yeah. kind of a country look. Yeah. My daughter-in-law, man, it's as formal as you get. There so you that go. ritual is really personal. Right. But it's rooted, it's rooted on the same needs in that way as well. Absolutely. That's my point. Yeah. Carl, uh, when we must say farewell, Carl Jennings, uh, I, 
absolutely want everybody to be in touch with him about how to get that book. We're going to include with, with it, yeah. it with a link in, on this podcast. We thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, Glad to be with you. And I'm Alan Creedy. You can do it. And we can help. Remember to send your questions by clicking the link at www.twoguysandaquestion.com. New questions are answered every Tuesday and Thursday at 4.22 p.m. Eastern Time.